right, thanks, Alex, and thanks for that introduction, and thanks for reading our passage tonight. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how this is going to go, I have to confess. I didn't really time how long this is going to go, so it could go either really fast or really slow, or it can go really long, so we'll just kind of see uh, as we start moving uh, into our passage. Um, but let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I just uh, thank you just for this evening that you've given us to look into your word and just to, uh, for us to learn uh, what you have to say about uh, the leaders of our church. And so uh, we just pray that you would just uh, open our eyes and our hearts uh, that, may, that we may be attentive to your word and just uh, convicted by the truths um, that you have for us tonight. So just thank you in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, we're just about winding down our series uh, in our What We Believe series, uh, where we've been taking a look at um, each of the topics that comprise our church's article of faith, right? And these articles of faith are a summary of what we as a church believe, right? These are articles, um, but they're just summaries, just uh, summaries of theological truths that are found in Scripture that on their own could really merit weeks or maybe even months of a lot of careful study. Um, but hopefully, though, uh, it will give you a better idea of what type of church we are and what type of church that we're trying to be. Um, so uh, hopefully it will also cause you or should cause you to consider what maybe you yourself believe concerning these topics and to search the scriptures and to come to uh, your own convictions. Um, so again, our topic tonight is uh, church government. And if you look at our Articles of Faith and what it says about um, what we believe uh, or what this church believes uh, in terms of our church government, uh, it says that we believe the Bible is the final authority for matters of faith and conduct. We believe the Bible ordains the leadership of each local church to a plurality of godly men known as elders. We believe the elders of the church are authorized by God to state and apply SFBC's beliefs and practices on any uh, disputed issue. And so uh, before we get into our text tonight, uh, I think it would be helpful for us to kind of understand um, the roles of the elders, uh, but also maybe to figure out who these elders really are, right, and maybe where they come from. Right? To speak plainly, elders are ones who have been given the authority to lead, uh, to govern, and to shepherd their churches. Right? In various places across the New Testament and in varying, varying translations, uh, the term elder is synonymous with other terms like bishop or overseer. Um, you also see terms like shepherd or pastor. So first, uh, where does the idea of elders come from? Where does that idea come from? Well, the idea of elders... Um, as those with authority and positions of leadership can be found all the way back uh, in the Old Testament, uh, even as early as the end of Genesis, uh, where if you recall Joseph, um, he's about ready to bury his father. He's going back home to bury his father. And so he brings along with him, it says, uh, the elders of his house and the elders of Egypt to take with him. And then uh, in early Exodus, God calls Moses uh, when he calls Moses, he calls him to gather the elders of Israel and approach the Pharaoh and tell, tell him that God is going to take them away from Egypt and then take them uh, into the promised land. And then all throughout the Old Testament, we see phrases like the elders of Israel or we see the elders of the city, right? Usually in the context of these elders having some sort of position of authority, whether it's in government or in um, the ways of, you know, not really the church, but before the church and you know, with the religious practices of Israel, right? And oftentimes, you will see elders, as it says in Proverbs 31, they're at the gates of the city, right? The elders are at the gates of the city because whenever there's important business, uh, it happens at the gates. And they were given authority under the law uh, to act like our judges would be today. Uh, if you read through Deuteronomy uh, a lot of times the tasks uh, for judging certain, certain situations would go to the elders, uh, the elders of that town to, um, to adjudicate whatever case was presented to them. Right. And so these men should be men who are 
whose counsel should be sought out by those in their city because of their knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Um, But that's what a picture of elders looked like in those days, right? In kind of like the Old Testament times. Um, But what does the elder of the church look like, right? The elder of, uh, what do the elders of the church look like, right? In the New Testament and even today, right? What makes for an elder? Well, the Bible is pretty clear, right? God wants the men that lead his church to have certain specific qualities, right? You know what, you know, and you know where those qualities are found, right? You know, 1 Timothy 3, you know Titus chapter 1. Many of you are very familiar with these qualities and um, that we're about to see. And I'm sure if I asked you, you guys would probably be able to name just about all of them. All right. Um, so if you want to turn to, um, we'll just look at one of the lists. So if you want to turn to uh, 1 Timothy 3, um, we'll see the list that maybe we'll look through a little bit uh, right now. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3. Right, and you guys are probably familiar with the game Family Feud, right? You guys know how it works, right? You got two families, one against each other, right? One family against another family, right? right the, the, the Joneses versus the Smiths, or I guess for us it'd be like, you know, the Lees versus the Chans, right? And so you guys know how it works, right? People try to, or the families send up one representative and they each try to give the most popular answer for that particular topic and they have, you know, certain categories and there's maybe like, you know, four or five right answers, right? The most popular answers, right? So if I said that we took a survey of a hundred people in the church, which we didn't, we're just saying, right? If we took a hundred people in the church and we surveyed them and we asked them, right, what is what maybe like what is a, what are one of the qualities of an elder right so that would be the question what's a quality of an elder maybe a quality of an elder um you would a quality you would want in your elder or just you know you'd want a, this is a quality of an elder right you got three answers right what would be the number one answer that people would say i think I think a lot of people would probably say the ability to teach, right? The ability to teach, uh, and and that's you know, that's probably I would I would guess that's probably the number one answer. I think maybe the other ones might be above reproach and maybe husband of one wife. I don't know. I'm, I'm making it up, so I think I can say with confidence that if I did it, it would be probably teaching would be the most popular. Um, right? It's able to teach is what um, Paul tells uh, Timothy. And I think it's maybe one of the most distinctive qualities of an elder because it's the quality that often distinguishes the deacon versus the elder, right? All the other qualities are pretty similar uh, except for this one. And so I think we often focus on this quality of elders a lot, right? The ability to teach and I think that's okay, and I don't think that that's wrong. Uh, but when we think of, because when we think of elders, we think of them as those who shepherd the flock, right? They need to feed the flock, right? And the flock needs to be fed God's word, right? In First Peter 2, uh, Peter encourages the church to, what does he say? To long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you can grow, right? So the shepherds must feed the flock. But if I can make a suggestion, um, Maybe we can be a little careful not to elevate uh, the gift of teaching to the point where it becomes the only qualification of an elder, right? And it's tempting to do that, and I think it's tempting because in our day uh, of church, right, it's probably the most visible aspect of the ministry. And when we think about what we look for in our leaders, uh, not just in church, but maybe in, in work or in the government or in our communities, you know, a lot of times we're looking for people that have certain abilities or they have certain skills, right? When you look at all the qualifications of the elder, well, really teaching might be the only skill that's on the list, right? When you look at everything else, it really has to do with his character, right? And so if we look at the passage right now, um, it says, and we'll start with verse 1, right? It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, 
is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, right? So it's like no one can really make a charge against him, right? No one can make a charge against him. That's someone's character, right? He is a husband of one wife, right? I mean, we don't really don't have to debate what that means, but we can just simply affirm that it's a characteristic of someone who is sexually pure, right? And that's also character, right? He's temperate, that's character. He's prudent, that's character. He's respectable, that's character. He's hospitable, that's character, right? And here's your skill, he's able to teach. Right? He's not addicted to wine or pugnacious, that's character. He's gentle, that's character. He's peaceable, that's character. He's free from the love of money, that's character. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Right? And maybe being a good manager of a home you know, can be considered a skill, um, but there's also the character of, of dignity um, that's involved in the management of his house. Right? And then verse six, right? he must not be a new convert right? so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Right? He's humble and that's character. Right? And then lastly, Right? He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Again, he has a good reputation. That's his character. Right? And so for some of you guys that are here, right, a lot of you, or some of you, I should say, some of you one day will become elders. Right? There might be a time, or there might be a time where some of you may want to become elders, whether it's uh, in full-time ministry or maybe even just as a lay elder. And verse one says, that's a fine work that you desire to do. And hopefully you can be encouraged and enabled to pursue serving the Lord in this way if that's what you've been called to do. And so you might be thinking, right, man, if I wanna be an elder, I have to be ready to teach, right? I have to be able to teach. Right? But I would encourage you, uh, maybe not to try so hard to get better at teaching that you neglect to develop your character. Right? If you follow the news concerning churches today, uh, a lot of it isn't good. Um, pastors are not being a one-woman man. Right? Others are not temperate and they're not gentle. Right? Some of these men are probably very gifted teachers and some of them are probably you know, well-respected authors, uh, but in their ministry, their testimony, and ultimately, right, the testimony in the name of Jesus Christ just gets flushed down the drain. And it's not because they can't teach, right? It's because they lacked character. So you can spend all the time you want getting ready and prepared to teach, to, give, to get yourself qualified for leadership, only just to get disqualified because of moral failure. And so for all of us, right, not just those who maybe want to become leaders in the church, I would encourage you to strive to build your character, right? And let your elders be the example, right? You, our elders are our example of what good godly character looks like. And I'll give you an example of, uh, in our church, what, what that type of character looks like. Um, the place where I started working now um, or where I've been working now. Um, when I started working there, it was maybe about a year or so maybe into it um, that I was working, and um, that's when um, Tiff and I got engaged. And it was um, around that time that, you know, it, it had just happened. The only person that I told was uh, the boss that hired me, okay? So the boss that hired me, he was pretty much like the only person that I told uh, he's a Christian, and so, you know, we're, we're on pretty good terms, and sometimes, you know, we'll talk, and just in the course of talking, we'll just talk about, you know, church things, and and so, you know, and, you know, being my boss, and you want him to know exactly what's, you know, kind of going on in case anything comes up, so, you know, I told him, right? I told him he got engaged, um, and then one day, um, like, the founder of our company, he comes by, and he comes to my desk, and he says, so, were you ever going to tell me that you got engaged? And I was like, oh man, I'm probably going to get fired. And so I asked, hey, did, you know, did my boss tell you? And he said, no. So, story goes, 
Right? He, he's telling me this because he's, there's one day where he was driving around. He lives in the sunset, so he's driving around, driving around sunset. I think he got a flat tire, right? So you kind of know where this is going, right? He got a flat tire. And so, you know, so you know who he goes to, right? So somehow he finds, he finds Jimmy, and he goes to Jimmy, goes to his garage, and he's getting his tire fixed, okay? He's getting his tire fixed. And so in the course of their conversation, somehow they, and, you know, this is um, our founder telling me this story, you know, somehow in the course of their conversation, they find out that, one, that Jimmy, I, and, and Stan all go to the same church, and then also, two, her is our boss. So they make this connection, and, you know, Jimmy is excited, so he brings down Joanna to introduce him and say, hey, you know, this is, this is her, he's, you know, he works with Stan and him, you know, and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, like, oh, did you know? And then she says this. She says, oh, good, now you can approve his time off for his honeymoon. And I was like, oh, this is, all right, right, but it's kind of embarrassing, right? That's how he finds out, okay, right? But what really stuck, what really struck me about the encounter that, that Herb had with me when he came to talk to me is that right, he just wouldn't stop talking about how much he appreciated Jimmy and everything that he did for him. Right? He, he just couldn't stop talking about his honesty, his integrity, you know, and he was just so impressed. Right? Now he still goes to Jimmy for all his tired concerns, and uh, whenever I see Whenever I see Herb sometimes and in the, in the office, he's not there too much, but, you know, he'll, he'll tell me, oh, yeah, hey, I, I went to Jimmy the other day, you know, and he, you know, he helped me fix my tires. He's such a great guy, you know. Have you seen him lately? How's Jimmy doing? You know, I'm like, yeah, he's, you know, he's all right. He's all right, you know. But, you know, that just goes to show, right, reputation outside the church, right? And then when I talk to Jimmy about it, you know, we're talking about it, and you know, he's telling me, like, how he's trying to witness to him, right, and how he's using his business uh, to further the gospel, how he's using it to be a witness, to show hospitality, you know, and that's the kind of example that, you know, we ought to follow, right? There's a quote from an 18th century poet, uh, I think he's an Irish poet, uh, and, it, and, and he says this, he says, you can preach a better sermon with your life than with your lips. And I've also heard it phrased this way. Um, the best sermon you will ever give is with your life. Right? And a little more application for all of us before we move on. Right? There might be some of you here looking for a home church. Um, there might be some of you here that uh, may be leaving us and have to look for a new church. Right? Um, there are a lot of things that you can look for in a church, right? but I would encourage you not to neglect to know the leaders, uh, because as we see in our text, um, they're, they're going to be the ones, um, they're going to be the examples that we're going to be called to follow. Right? So that's the type of leader um, that God is looking for. Um, and as we look back to um, our articles of faith, um, one more time, um, it says there that we believe that the Bible ordains a leadership of each local church to a plurality of godly men known as elders, right? So you may be asking then, um, there with so many different models of church government out there, right? Why is it this one, right? Why do we submit to a plurality of elders? Like more, why do we have more than one elder um, governing this church, Right, there's other models. Uh, they include uh, a pastor-led church, right? The church being led by you know a singular pastor. Um, there's congregation-led churches where you know the congregation um, makes the decisions together. Um, there's different models like Presbyterian, Episcopalian. Uh, there's corporate boards, and, and those are just some, right? And we don't really have time to get into all the different types and you know the reasoning behind those models. Um, but what we will do. Um, really quickly is to take a brief survey into the scriptures and examine the evidence for a plurality, a plurality of elders, since that's what we hold to. Um, so first, uh, I do want to say that when it comes to governing or shepherding the church, uh, we really don't have any explicit commands uh, 
in Scripture that tell us how the leadership of the local church must be structured. Right? Like, there's nothing to say that in this type, in, in this church, you must have X number of elders and this number of deacons or this number of pastors. And there's nothing like that. Um, but when we look at the text that we'll be looking at in just a moment, it does seem, though, that it was pretty typical for the local churches in those days to have or to seek to have multiple elders. Uh, in Titus 1.5, Paul calls Titus to appoint elders in every city. Uh, in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders uh, in every church. In Acts 20.17, um, when Paul is saying um, farewell to um, the um, church in Ephesus, um, he called um, he called to them the elders of the church. And then in James 5.14, this is the anointing passage, anointing with oil passage. Right? It says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call upon the elders of the church. Right? So you kind of get the idea. It's multiple elders, singular location. Right? In each of these cases, right, you see that the elders are referred to in the plural, suggesting that uh, in the local church, Right, the local church was encouraged to have more than one elder. Right, so using that as the New Testament church model or type, uh, that's why we have a plurality of elders, or that's why we practice having a plurality of elders. Right, and we're trying to follow the pattern that we see in Scripture. And practically, um, it's also just, you know, just wise to have multiple counselors. Right? Uh, in, Proverbs, uh, in Proverbs, it says... You know, where there is no guidance, people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there's victory, right? And similarly, in Proverbs 15.22, it says, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Um, but to be fair, there are some passages that also do indicate that the church body as a whole did play some role in uh, making decisions as, as it pertained to the church, uh, in Acts uh, particularly, uh, in Acts 6, remember when, you know, the church appointed deacons, right? The congregation at the direction of the apostles uh, chose deacons who would serve the church. And then in Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem council, um, it said that the apostles and the elders uh, with the whole church chose men to send to Antioch. You know, they sent them to Antioch to convey the decision of, of that important meeting. Right, so uh, it seems like uh, in some cases the whole church was involved in the decision-making process. Uh, and then also when we look at the end stages of dis church discipline, right, we have to tell it to the church. Right? Um, so it could be argued um, that it was the elders who were leading, uh, but it was the congregation that was there to really affirm the decision of the elders. Right? And we do that here sometimes right? when it comes to certain um, big decisions uh, in our church, like appointing elders or pastors, um, we might take what we, you know, call a vote, whether or not to affirm the decision the elders have made. Um, but in the end, really, um, the decision falls upon the elders to make. Um, so, as we've gotten some background as to who these elders are, uh, and maybe what they should look like, and why we have multiple elders um, to lead the church, um, we're going to look at more specifically uh, what they do and how they are to do it. Right? Um, so as we look more to more details uh, in our passage tonight, uh, according to 1 Peter, they are to shepherd the flock of God. Right? So we'll go uh, get started into our text. So turn to uh, 1 Peter. Uh, we'll be in chapter 5 tonight. Um, but before we start, uh, it might be helpful to kind of get a little bit of a background um, to get a feel for where we are in this epistle, because we're kind of uh, entering it at kind of the end. Um, so, many of you are probably very familiar with 1 Peter, uh, so you know what it's about. Right? It's, it's a lot about suffering, right? And when we say suffering, uh, we're talking about a lot of heavy persecution, right? And how you live in the midst of that suffering and persecution. Right? But this epistle is more than just dealing and living with suffering and persecution. It's about the hope and glory to come when we endure them. When we, you know, we think about the times that we live in, and we think we live in a pretty anti-Christian culture, right? Christians are looked down upon, 
um, partly because of our own doing, but it's also largely because the message of the gospel is in direct violation of their desire to rule themselves and to do what's right in their own eyes, right? And they don't want to live in subjection uh, to their creator, right? And as we learned last week um, about how we're to live in subjection to our civil authorities, right, we're reminded of how the laws and the statutes that are being put into place really honor and appease the immoral, right? Where God's statutes and those that abide by them are seen as immoral or ignorant, uh, maybe even hateful. Right? But the people Peter is writing to were enduring a suffering that probably none of us will ever likely know. Now, there's some debate as to when First Peter was written. Uh, most scholars uh, generally believe that Peter wrote this epistle sometime in the early to mid-60s A.D., um, with most scholars kind of settling in around maybe anywhere between 62, uh, 64 A.D. Um, that places the date of this epistle um, during the rule of Emperor Nero, right, who ruled from uh, 54 to 68 A.D. And one of the defining moments in Nero's reign happened in 64 A.D., and it's a very famous event, you guys are probably aware, when a large fire swept through the city of Rome, right, the capital city, and destroyed much of it, claiming the lives of thousands. Right? And the rumor at the time was that Nero started the fire himself, right, so that he can build more palaces and build more buildings to his liking on the devastated land. Right? That was the rumor going around at the time. And so in order to divert the blame from himself, what did he do? He blamed, he blamed the Christians. And the Christians at the time were pretty easy targets uh, for a number of reasons. Um, some of them include, uh, one, you know, as Christians, right, they re naturally refused to worship the Roman gods, and that includes the emperor. Right? So they were seen as potential threats to the welfare of the kingdom. Right? In Roman religion, um, you know, they wanted to be pleasing to the gods, right? They wanted to offer sacrifices, and if the gods were happy, then the gods would make them happy. But if there's people out there in the kingdom refusing to give offerings and sacrifices to the gods, then that would make the gods angry. And in turn, right, it would make life, they would make life hard for the people. And so... You have these Christians who are refusing to try and make these gods happy, right? And so they look at these Christians, right? The Romans may have looked at these Christians as maybe people who were, you know, not, they didn't care about their kingdom, right? They're, they're traitors, right? And many Christians also um, at the time were Jews or associated with the Jews, um, but the Jews also really weren't looked at in the most positive light among the Romans. Uh, a lot of and you see in history where the Jews have a storied history of resistance to Roman rule. Uh, some of them ended pretty violently. And so again, you know, they, they might be potentially seen as traitors to the empire. Right? And then another reason um, why Christians weren't really looked upon so positively uh, in, in the Roman world. You know, people just thought they had weird practices. Right? Um, the Lord's Supper, right, where they eat and they drink the body and blood of their founder, of their leader, right? And communion at the time, you know, this probably closed some believers, so they really couldn't see what was going on, and so they really just only speculated, right? They can only speculate, like, what, what's going on? Why are they doing something so secretive? Like, why are they talking about eating and drinking someone's flesh and blood? Right? And so, but regardless of the reason, right, the Christians at the time then um, they did face persecution of the most extreme degree. Right? As an example, uh, here's an excerpt from Tacitus. He's a Roman official and historian regarding Nero and the fire. Uh, and so he says this. He says, Yet no human effort, no princely largus, which is like a monetary gift, nor offerings to the gods could make that infamous rumor disappear that Nero had somehow started the fire. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians. 
who were infamous for their abominations. Therefore, first those were seized, were admitted, who admitted to their faith, and then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for their hatred of the human race. And perishing, and perishing, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs, having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. So this is the environment in which Peter is delivering his message. Right? And it's a fair question to ask, right? Well, why is this all happening? Right? The church is in its infancy, right? The church just started. It's probably barely 30 years old, right? Imagine that. Like some of you are probably around 30 years old, give or take, right? It's like the church. When I say the church, I mean like the capital C church, right? The whole church. The whole church has been around maybe for as long as you've been alive, right? And in comparison, you know, SFBC is like, you know, 50-something years old, right? And yet, the church has been persecuted since its existence, right? In Jerusalem, uh, by the Jews, so many flee, and Christians find their way to Rome. Um, and then, you know, this happens with the fire, and uh, the readers of Peter's epistles, he calls them aliens, right? They're scattered all the way uh, in the north, in Asia Minor, or what we consider, uh, what we see as modern Turkey today. And they're being persecuted too, right? And they're not just being persecuted, they're being martyred. And they're not just being martyred, they're being murdered in some of the most horrific ways imaginable. Right? And it's almost like the church is going to get wiped out before it even gets started. Uh, but we know that can't be a possibility because the church is built on the cornerstone of Christ himself. And he said to Peter, right, not even the gates of Hades will overpower it. So what's happening? Well, as John records in John 15, Jesus has already warned the disciples um, during the Last Supper that they were going to be hated and persecuted by the world because of him. Uh, but more immediately, even in 1 Peter, um, if we look uh, even a little bit before our text in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, it reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for testing as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Right? It's the theme of suffering leading to glory. Right? That's a big theme in, in Peter's epistle. Uh, temporary suffering, eternal glory. Right? The Christians who are being persecuted even to the point of death, they're to glorify God. And it's an opportunity that the church has to prove its faith, right? To share alongside Christ with his sufferings, right? It's an opportunity to bring praise, honor, and glory at the return of Jesus Christ, right? First Peter 1, 6-7 says something similar. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, um, we'll get into our passage. We'll get into our passage. So um, we can just go ahead, and I'll go ahead and read it for us again. Um, this is 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. And Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet lording, over, lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right. So, with that background in mind, we come to the first word in our text. It's therefore. Right. So, uh, just to give you guys a quick outline um, of our passage. Uh, one, 
Uh, one is the responsibility of the elders. Uh, so that's what we'll be looking at first. The responsibility of the elders. Oh, that's one through four. And then verse five, um, this is number two. Uh, the response of the congregation. Number two is the response of the congregation. So responsibility of the elders and then response of the congregation. Right? So therefore, he says, right? Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Right? The therefore kind of gives us an idea of what's going on, right? We are now aware of the sufferings and the trials and the persecutions that the church is facing. So Peter is encouraging and exhorting the elders, right? And if you're going to live like Christ in this world, as we had mentioned earlier and Christ had mentioned earlier, right, you must be ready and you must expect persecution, ridicule, suffering, and even death. And so he wants to, so Peter wants to encourage the elders among them that are listening or reading. Right, so he gives the elders three reasons why he is encouraging them to fulfill their responsibility um, to the church and also to God. One, he's a fellow elder. Right? The church is being put to the test and the elder, elders are expected to lead them. Right? And Peter is saying that he's right there with them. Right? He doesn't address himself as an apostle, um, at least not right here. Right? He's identifying himself as a fellow elder. And he could have commanded them as an apostle. Right? This could be uh, a command, which it, you know, it kind of is, but... He can speak to them as an apostle who has the authority, right? But he chooses, again, to identify himself as an elder, right? He's facing the same dangers, right? He's entrenched in the same fiery ordeal, as he says in chapter 4, verse 12, right? And if we understand our church history, it, it probably won't be more than a few years later that Peter himself would be martyred, right? He's a fellow elder, Second, the second reason for exhortation that he can give is that he is a firsthand witness to the sufferings of Christ. Right? He says in chapter 2 that we are called to this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And there's probably no one more acquainted with the sufferings of Christ than Peter. Right? Peter, he, he's probably there for probably almost all of it, right? I mean, you read your Gospels, you read the Gospels, and you see the accounts, or you read the accounts of the sufferings of Christ, you know, Peter's probably there. Right? He's probably there when, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees are constantly confronting him, plotting against him. You remember uh, in John 6 when Jesus is saying how, you know, um, the disciples must eat of his flesh and drink his blood. A lot of those disciples, they didn't get it. And what did they do? They walked away. Right? And Peter was there for that. Or how about when, um, how about when they're in the garden, right? When Jesus is agonizing and his sweat is like blood, right? Peter's there for that. Or how about when Jesus gets arrested and put on trial? Right? Peter's there for that. And then out, you know, outside of the Apostle John, you know, we don't really know where. Peter or the other disciples, our apostles are during the crucifixion. Um, but, you know, he probably wasn't too far away. You know, he could have been there. Um, and even if he wasn't there, right, he was probably close enough to feel it. Right? Peter was there to see firsthand the example that he is calling the church to follow. And then thirdly, uh, he's a partaker of the glory to come. Right? He's a partaker of the glory to come. Right. Not only was Peter a witness to the sufferings of Christ, but he was also a witness to his glory. Right? He was a witness to his resurrection. He was a witness to the resurrected Jesus. But another thing Peter was witness to was the transfiguration. Right? It was the glory of God revealed, and Peter was there to see it. Right? It's kind of like a sneak peek of what's to come. And he also knows that he's a partaker of, of the glory to come because Jesus told him. Right? You remember how the Gospel of John ends? Right? Jesus restores Peter. Right? You, 
are familiar with him, you know, Jesus asking Peter if he loves him, and Peter says, you know, of course, love him, love you, and he says, you know, tend my lambs or feed my sheep, right? And then after that, uh, after Jesus restores Peter, or at that time, he tells him what kind of death he's going to have, right? But it was a kind of death that would glorify God, right? Peter was a man who was going to be walking into the fiery ordeal, but he was not going to walk out. Right? He is a partaker of the glory to come. Right? So if there's anyone who could encourage the church during this time, right, during this time of intense suffering with the hope of a future glory, it's going to be Peter. Right? Not, because not only is he a living example of suffering and glory, but he saw firsthand the epitome of his example and our example of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, he lays out the responsibility of the church. And it's simply this, right? In verse 2, it says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Right? Shepherd the flock of God. Right? The elder's responsibility is to shepherd. Right? The word shepherd here is where we get the word pastor. Right? Um, so what does it mean to shepherd? Right? The shepherd is to, right, to shepherd is to, to feed. You feed the sheep. Right, going back to the end of John, when um, Jesus goes to Peter, right, what, again, what does he ask him? He asks him, do you love me? And Peter responds, of course I do, of course I love you. This happens three times, and then what does Jesus say? He says, take care of my sheep. Right? Twice he uses the word tend, tend my sheep, and I think if you have other translations like the ESV, I think it says what? It says feed, right? feed my sheep. We talked earlier about elders feeding the word of God to the church, right? Long for the pure milk of the word, Peter said earlier, right? So what's the responsibility of the, sh of the shepherd or the elder shepherd the sheep? And how does one shepherd? One, he feeds the sheep, right? But what else can or what else does a shepherd do? The shepherd also protects, right? The shepherd protects the sheep. Um, if you look back at Acts 20, um, we referenced it a little bit earlier, Right, Acts 20, uh, near the end, that's when Paul is saying his goodbyes to the Ephesian church. And so he has a warning for them. And in Acts 20, 20 to 28 to 30, he says to them, right, to the leaders of the church, he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Right. Paul is saying his goodbye. He's hoping to make it to Jerusalem, but he doesn't necessarily know what might be awaiting him. So he warns the Ephesian elders to be on guard right, for themselves and for the flock. Right. Why? It's because... When people, see, when people see Paul leave, then the wolves will come, right? They think that the shepherd is gone, so the sheep are vulnerable, right? Vulnerable to false teachings and false doctrines that will lead them astray in the faith. So Paul calls the elders of uh, the church to protect God's sheep. And how do they protect him, right? It's just like how they feed him, right? They give him the word. They protect them with the word. Uh, Titus 1, 9 to 11 says this about the elder, right? It says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Right? The elders must be able to defend the sheep and they do it by defending the word, right? So what's the responsibility of the elders, right? They shepherd the flock, right? They feed them, they protect them, right? But it's also important to realize who the elders are to shepherd, right? He says, shepherd, um, Peter says in verse two. Well, shepherd who? He says, it doesn't say shepherd the pastor's flock. It doesn't say shepherd the elder's flock. It doesn't say shepherd your flock. Right? He says, shepherd the flock of God. 
faith. God didn't just create you. He purchased you. He redeemed you. Right? Not, as Peter says in chapter 1, with silver and gold. Not with perishable things, but with the precious blood, the blood of Christ. Right? The elders are merely stewards. Right? As it says in Hebrews 13, they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Right? They have to give an account because those souls aren't theirs. Right? Those souls belong to God, and he will make them answer one day, what have you done with my flock? So the elders of the church are to shepherd God's flock. Right? They are to care for them by feeding them. They protect their souls. Uh, they, they protect them. Right? They protect the souls that God has entrusted to them. And then Peter tells them now how they are to do it. Right? How do they shepherd? Right? He gives them three things. He gives the elders three things to avoid, each followed by something they ought to do. So a negative and a positive. Right? So the first negative that we see, what does it say? He says, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. How? Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Right? Not under compulsion. Right? That's meaning not by force or constraint. Right? And the corresponding positive is what? But voluntarily. Shepherding the flock of God isn't something that the elders feel like they have to do. Right? It's something that they want, something that they desire to do. Right? The work of an elder or shepherd, it's not something that, ha that must be forced. Right? We don't want to force people into ministry. Right? We don't want to force people even into serving. Right? It's always out of an internal desire to do so. Right, there shouldn't be uh, any external pressures, you can say, um, for one to want to shepherd God's people. Right? An elder shouldn't feel compelled to shepherd because he feels pressure from people who want or expect him to do it. Right? God wants elders who love his sheep. Right? He wants shepherds and elders who will willingly walk miles and miles to lead his sheep to green grass and still water. Right? He wants elders who want to take a sick or injured sheep and put him on his lap, pour oil over it, and clean its coat, right? He wants those that are willingly, that would willingly run after that sheep that has wandered away and is lost and is helpless, right? He wants shepherds, he wants elders that are willing, that would willingly lay down their life for his sheep, right? God wants elders who love to do his will who love his sheep. Right? He wants shepherds who look like the great shepherd, or the good shepherd. And here's the second negative. Right? And then he doesn't want, right? God doesn't want the elders to shepherd for what? For sordid gain. Not for sordid gain. Right? This kind of has the idea of something shameful or, or dirty, right? Shameful or dirty personal gain, right? The one who is fond of sordid gain is someone who really, really doesn't care how he makes money. And in the scriptures, right, do you know what kind of shepherds are in it for the money? It's false teachers, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul describes those who advocate for a different doctrine, and don't agree with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, description of these people, it's like the opposite traits of an elder outlined in chapter 3. And it ends with a description of these men that, or who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Right, they're using the church. They're using the word as a means of gain. Right, and there's nothing wrong, first of all, with you know, pastors, right, making a living, right, doing what they do, shepherding the flock, right? I mean, Paul, even in a chapter earlier, tells them, right, they're worthy of double honor, right? They're worthy of being paid their wages. But th this is something different, right? This is something different. Paul also warns Titus, similarly, in chapter 1 and 11. We just read that, right, describing rebellious men who are teaching things they should not teach. Why? It says, for the sake of sordid gain. And then Peter himself warns the church about false prophets in 2 Peter chapter 2, and he says of them, in their greed, they will exploit you 
with false words. Now, I went and I searched and I tried to look for, you know, who are the, the richest, richest pastors in America and who are the richest pastors in the world. Um, it came across like a slideshow or two and, you know, like, you know, you have the picture of the person and then add a little description and then you just click the next button and it shows you the next one. And a large majority of them, right, you click, click the link, the next you know, picture pops up and you're like, right, you, you know, right, you, you know the name and you're probably a little bit familiar with the teaching and you know it's, it's not good. Right? And to be fair, there, there are some that, you know, you look at them, okay, you know, they're legit, right? But the vast majority of them, you know, not men of sound doctrine, right? But they're rich. Why? Because they use the word or they use the church as a means for sordid gain. But the elder or the pastor of God, he isn't in it for the money, is he? Right? The elder must be, as First Timothy 3 says, free from the love of money, Right? And instead, instead of serving or shepherding for sordid gain, they ought to serve with what? It says, serve with eagerness. Right? Peter encourages the elders to shepherd with a sense of willingness and joy, right? and ex a sense of excitement for the role that God has given them. And then lastly, right, it says, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Right, this is the third and the last negative. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge. Right, the term lording over or lording it over, it has the idea of like totally dominating or coming down harshly or hard on people. Right, the, elder, the elders are not to be harsh dictators. Right, they don't use their authority in that way, right? It's like bullying or intimidating, right? It's, it's, it's if like the elder or the pastor is saying, look, I'm the elder or the pastor of this church, so you just do what I say kind of attitude, right? But Peter says that the flock, it's not yours to lord over, right? They have been allotted to your charge. They are your stewardship. And again, they don't belong to you. Instead, Peter exhorts the elders to lead by, what? To lead by example, right? This is the type of elder that doesn't just tell you how to live a godly life, right? He's going to show you, right? He's going to show you a life worth imitating. And to bring this back to the context of uh, First Peter then, right? The elders need to be an example of how true faith holds up under fire, right? Look back again at First Peter 1, six to seven, it says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then, um, again, we looked at this before, but First Peter 4, 12 and 13, Again, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange, some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Right? The church at this time is, going, is undergoing major testing. Right? Christians are suffering and dying for the sake of Christ. Right? And, Peter, and in Peter 4.17, he says, 1 Peter 4.17, he says that the judgment is to begin with the household of God. Right? God is purifying his church. Right? And who does it start with? It starts with the leaders and the elders. Right? They're going to be the first that are going to be tested, so they're going to need to be the examples. So then the elder... He's not someone who just tells you to go through the fire, right? He's not someone that will tell you to go around the fire, right? He's going to be the one to take your hand and lead you through it. And by his example, he's going to show you that it's okay to go through the fire, even if it means, it lose your, even if it means you lose your life. Why, right? Why? 
Because on the other side of that fire, what's on the other side? Right? It's the outcome of your faith. It's the salvation of your soul. Or, as it says in verse 4, for the elder, right, it's the unfading crown of glory. Right? For the faithful shepherd, right, it says that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right? So for their example, for their shepherding, if they're faithful, right, they will receive an unfading crown of glory. And then who's there to give them that crown? It's the, it's the chief shepherd. Right? And so if walking through this fiery ordeal means that I get to see Jesus on the other side, then where else do we go? Right? We just go through the fire. Right? And it's okay because I have my shepherds leading me, right? drawing me closer to my shepherd. Right? So the suffering is okay. Right? The elder will help us realize that if in Christ's love for us, he's willing to suffer and die, right? what an honor it would be if, we, if he would give us the opportunity to show him how much we love him by doing the same. Right? That's the responsibility of the elder. Right? He has to shepherd the flock. Right? He feeds them, he protects them, and he leads them. Right, and how does he do it? He does it voluntarily, he does it eagerly, and he does it by example. And in doing so, right, he proves himself a faithful steward of God's flock, and he will receive his reward. Right? A reward that is imperishable and unfading. Right? It's temporary suffering, but it's eternal glory. Okay, so that's the responsibility of the shepherd, or the responsibility of the elder. And then now for number two, really quickly, uh, it's the response of the congregation, right? How does the congregation respond to such an elder, right? Verse five says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? How does the church respond to the shepherding from their elders, right? It's very simple. He says, be subject to your elders, right? It means to place yourself under them, right? To put yourself in line behind them, right? And that's why the elders are so important, right? They're your model. They're your example, right? Again, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, right? It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And let them do this with joy, and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So then, uh, what are some of the ways that we can let our elders watch over us with joy? Right? How, can we, how can we be faithful to this passage and faithful to our charge as the congregation? Well, uh, Hebrews 13, 18, the very next verse, the author asks them to pray. Right? Pray that their conduct be honorable in all things. So we can pray to God that he will uphold our leaders, right? uphold their conduct and allow them to endure in the ministry. Here's a second way that we can let our elders serve with joy and lead with joy. Now this is the easy one, okay? Be at church, right? And it's not because uh, it's nice to have a full sanctuary or it's nice to have overflowing Sunday school rooms, right? It's because when your elders see you at church, right, they know that you're being fed, right? They know that you're being given God's word. Uh, second, or thirdly, um, another thing that you can do is uh, join the membership, right? Something very, another thing that's very practical, join the membership, uh, uh, if you know you feel like God's calling you um, to whichever church it is, this church, other churches, you know, join the membership, be an active part of that church body. You know, some people might say, well, you know, membership isn't in the Bible, right? And and that's true, right? But again, look at look at Hebrews seventeen thirteen seventeen. The charge of the leaders is that they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They have to give an account for the souls that are given to them. 
being a member helps the leadership and our leaders know who they need to account for, right? It allows them to know that you are being willing to put yourself in subjection to their leadership, right? And again, remember, right, the elders have to give an account to God one day for the people in this church, for you and for me, right? Shepherding is already hard enough Right? And it's compounded in its difficulty when you don't know who you need to shepherd. And then lastly, um, this is kind of open-ended, and I think this will be a part of our discussion, uh, discussion questions tonight. Just find ways to be in an encouragement to your elders. I mean, find different ways. Uh, you guys can, in your groups, discuss it. Um, and I just want to close with this. It's, you know, shepherding is... Shepherding the, God, the flock of God, it's, it's very hard, right? It's a heavy burden. I remember it was a long time ago. It was probably, yeah, it was first year I went to Shepherd's Conference, the very first year, right? There weren't that many of us. There was just, there was just like three of us, okay? Pastor Henry sends out this email and he says, hey, you know, if any guys are interested in going to this conference, you know, why don't you come along, sign up and, and come along and join me to go. So, all right, you know, um, I didn't know what the conference was. I didn't know what it was about. You know, I just kind of figured, you know, he just, you know, wanted some company to go along with him, right? It's a shepherd's conference. It's for pastors. Like, what am I going to do there, right? And so we go and, you know, we get there. And in one of the first days, we're just kind of walking, you know, um, walking either to like, you know, the next session or walking to register. I don't remember. Um, but then he asked me this question. He says, and, you know, I've probably only been working, like, maybe two or three years um, at the time. Um, not that long. You know, and he says, hey, how, how many, he says, Tim, how many pharmacists change careers? Right? I'm like, I don't know. I, why, why are you asking me this? Like, why am I here and why are you asking me this question? I, I, I had no idea. Like, I didn't know what he was getting at. And then he asked the second question. So, I don't know. So, I just, like, made up a number. So, I don't know. Like, probably less than 5%. I, I don't know. It, I, I'm guessing it's pretty small, right? Um, and then he asked me the second question, and he says, how many, you know, what percentage of people in the ministry do you think ever finish their career in the ministry? And I had no idea, too. I was like, well, I don't know, right? I mean, these are shepherds, right? These are faithful men, Zero, right? Nobody. No one will leave the ministry. Uh, but he said, I mean, and it was a number that was so high. I don't even know if it's right. Like, I don't even know if, like, you know, I remember correctly. But he said, I think he said it was almost half, right? I mean, people who start out wanting to go to ministry. I'm not sure exactly what he meant in terms of, like, maybe it's people who start out wanting to go into ministry and then eventually left. Um, but the point that he was making was that, you know, shepherding is hard. It's a heavy burden. A lot of times, ministry ends in a lot of heartache. It ends in a lot of sadness. Sometimes, for some, it might even end in disgrace. And so he told me, like, look around. Like, and you see all these people, I don't know, a couple thousand maybe, you know, says, look around. A lot of these people, right, they're pastors now, but in the end, a lot of them won't be. And so his encouragement to me was this. He said, hey, you know, if you have a chance, you know, try and be an encouragement to some of these pastors. And he said, because a lot of these pastors, they, you know, they, they're hurting and they're struggling. You know, a conference like this might be the only thing that keeps them from quitting. So he says, be an encouragement. Right? They the pastor and the elder, they have such a huge responsibility holding on to your soul under their care. All right, so I would encourage you to encourage them and to make their shepherding, make their shepherding God's flock a joy. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, let's just go ahead and close in a time of prayer. Uh, dear God, uh, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the example of your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered, who died, and who is now glorified and is our example. 
We thank you for the example of the Apostle Peter and the example that he has given to the elders and that the example that the elders you have charge over this church have given to us. We pray that you would allow us as your flock to love you and to love your shepherds uh, in a way that honors you. Uh, Help us to not be afraid of any suffering, any trial, as if it was some strange thing, um, but to endure it knowing that in the end it honors you, uh, it glorifies you. Um, So we just pray for the rest of our time tonight. Um, Use this time of discussion to help us love and care for our shepherds better and for our shepherds to love and care for us better so that we may all love and care for you better. We just thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.